This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to... Hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Where the history is wacky and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian And Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. This is part two of our Salem Witch Trials miniseries, and we are taking the timeline all the way to the end of the trials. This episode features a promo from the Three Beers In podcast, which can be found at the end of the episode. And it's the usual social media, blah, blah, blah. Twitter at Dear Historians and Instagram slash Facebook at Outlandish Historians for announcements and behind the scenes things. Make sure you rate and review us wherever you listen or on Podchaser. One rating or review goes a long way in letting us know that you guys are out there listening and enjoying what we're putting out. So let's head on back to Salem Village, Massachusetts Bay Colony, 1692. On June 10th, 1692, Bridget Bishop was hanged on Gallows Hill, convicted of the most gruesome and despicable crime. Witchcraft. It was probably a slow, terrible death. Six days after Bridget was murdered, we're going to call it exactly what it was, Dr. Roger Toothaker also died. No, he wasn't executed. Roger hadn't even had his trial yet. He didn't survive the Boston prison the witches, quote-unquote, were being held in as honored guests. It was around this time that Judge Nathaniel Saltonstall, one of the judges from the court of Oyer and Terminer that we mentioned in Part 1, chose to walk away from the trials. At some point, even he would be accused of being a witch wizard, but it never came to anything. He wasn't even arrested. So some of the dudes involved with the trial wanted to make sure they were on the up and up. Chief among them, Governor Phipps. You know, as up and up as you can be trying people for witchcraft. So he gathered his counsel and four of the judges, Stoughton, Sewell, Winthrop, and Sargent, on June 13th. Spectral evidence, yay or nay? A bunch of respected ministers were asked and basically said this. The judges were dealt a really terrible hand, man, like had a lot of heavy hard work ahead of them. Those poor guys. Now, spectral evidence wasn't necessarily the best kind of evidence. Make sure you guys really go after the bad eggs. For the judges, this meant keep going full steam ahead. Yay, spectral evidence. Not really what the minister said, but you know, if it serves your purpose, I guess. Not a lot of people spoke out against the trials or in favor of the accused. It usually ended with that person chained up in the prison right alongside everyone else. But some did. William Milborn, a Baptist minister from Boston, sent the governor two petitions about spectral evidence. According to him, it was complete and utter shit. A lot of good people were rotting in prison because of spectral evidence and nothing else. Allowing the use of spectral evidence meant anyone could be accused. Too true, Minister Milburn. Too true. At the end of June, the court of Oyer and Terminer got back to work. After Bridget Bishop, there was Sarah Good, Rebecca Nurse, Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Howe, and Sarah Wilds. They were the next five women to be tried, convicted, and sentenced. After Bridget, these were the people with the strongest cases against them. A slam dunk for Thomas Newton and the judges. There was a crazy amount of so-called evidence brought against Sarah Good during her trial. Her specter was out and about, tormenting the afflicted girls, because what else was it going to do? She had also gone after Sarah Biber's kid, and even Sarah Biber herself. Sarah Good's specter apparently pinched and beat people quite a lot. In addition to spectral evidence, there was also the fact that Sarah Good was accused of witchcraft by quite a few self-confessed witches. 
Signing the Devil's Book, taking midnight joyrides on a broomstick, having animal familiars, you know, the usual. And then one of the afflicted broke out into fits whenever she was near. Survey says, she's a witch. Susanna Martin was the next to be convicted. After Susanna came Rebecca Nurse, you know, the 70-year-old woman who was an absolute paragon of virtue and one of the most well-liked people in Salem Village. Unlike some of the other people who were accused, Rebecca had an incredible support system behind her. Her entire family was campaigning her innocence, trying to get a sound defense ready, getting other members of the community to sign a petition in regards to her innocence. So apparently Rebecca Spector was tormenting the afflicted, you know, blah, blah, blah. Plus, like Bridget Bishop, Rebecca also had a witch's teat. (laughs) You know, right there, confirmation. So the jury went out, they talked it over, came back. Verdict? Not guilty. Sigh of relief, right? Mm, Not so much. So the girls started flipping a shit. The judges were all, what the fuck is that? Go back and do it again. Didn't you hear her say that Deliverance Hobbs and her daughter Abigail accused witches themselves? Was one of them? Duh. An admission. Try again. The jury went back, then came back out. They needed to ask her some more questions to make a decision. The jury wanted her to explain what she meant about Deliverance Hobbs when she was brought in. Rebecca didn't say a word. So out the jury went again. They came back with a new verdict. Guilty. Shocker. Rebecca's family said she didn't answer the jury because she was practically deaf. But nope, it didn't matter. Governor Phipps even stepped in for a second to put things off, but then took it back when a dude from Salem bitched about it. And then, the high and mighty members of the Salem Town Church excommunicated Rebecca Nurse. Well, fuck you too. That brought the total to three convicted witches set for the hangman's noose. But wait, we still have two more to go. Elizabeth Howe and Sarah Wilde, both from Topsfield, were the last of this set to be tried. Yet again, there was that ever-damning spectral evidence held against them, plus earlier accusations of witchcraft. Both were found guilty. All five women were taken to Gallows Hill on July 19th and hanged. Sarah Good didn't meet the end without getting in a parting shot. When she was asked to confess, Sarah Good might as well have told them all to fuck off. Alright, her exact words were, You are a liar. I am no more a witch than you are a wizard. And if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink. Which we took from Emerson Baker's A Storm of Witchcraft. Round of applause for Sarah Good. Right there. Because, my God, bow to this woman. Rebecca Nurse was a rock star until the end. She got up there, said her prayers, and even asked God to pardon all the people who stood against her. Honestly, I don't know that I would have been able to do it. I'm more with Sarah Good on the vengeance thing. Yeah, I 100% agree. I don't know. I think blood to drink. That That's pretty accurate. Uh-huh. No. Mm-mm. I'm not that nice. Okay? Especially since the good people of Salem didn't even bury them properly. They just threw them in a shallow grave on Gallows Hill. Because, you know, they were witches, so practically garbage. Right? Who cares? Alright, so the night after those women were killed, the male members of the Nurse family went back to the site of the crime and brought Rebecca Nurse home. That, in and itself, was incredibly dangerous. But they knew she was innocent, and they loved her too much to leave her on that hill. She was reburied in an unmarked grave on the Nurse family land. Now, John Proctor did make one last attempt to save his life and the lives of the other prisoners. So it wasn't just, oh, no, pardon me so I can go free and live. No, he was concerned about, you know, everyone chained up next to him. So he wrote a letter to the Puritan bigwigs asking that the trials get moved to Boston or to have the judges replaced with unbiased parties. Huh, that's funny. I'm sorry. That's a little too hopeful. But he even got a bunch of his neighbors to sign their names to a petition for him and his wife, Elizabeth. 
No dice. Absolutely nothing changed. And then the insanity spread to Andover. Two of the Salem girls who were being tormented by witches went to Andover to suss out the evil witchy element in town. Okay. You see, Elizabeth Ballard had been really sick for a while. Now, the only reason could be witchcraft, of course. It could be like, you know, illness. Now, as a result, Anne Foster, her daughter, Mary Lacey Sr., and her granddaughter, Mary Lacey Jr., were all named as witches. Three generations of one family. Just like that. Well, they do say that witchcraft is genetic. You know, what? pass it down. Everybody write a broom. So, or is the term hereditary? Hereditary. That's the word I want. <laughs> it's genetic. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. We know what you meant. <laughs> so now, what made this situation even worse? They all confessed. Okay? I get it. You're facing, you know, your execution if you don't confess, which is like the most convoluted, ridiculous, inside-out thing ever. But I, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know that I would be able to do that and give them the satisfaction. I think I would rather... Blood to drink, guys. Blood to drink. Right? Like, cut off my own arms. Now, then they did what all the other confessed witches did. They named other witches. So not only were they dragged into this, knowing that they were witches, or maybe they believed it at that point, who knows, they then did the same thing to other people. So Miss Junior, okay, Miss Mary Lacey Junior, said that Martha Carrier was a witch, killed people with magic. Martha's sons, Richard and Andrew, were also accused and didn't confess until it was basically tortured out of them. Then those two boys named even more people, including their own mother. Since they were witch wizards, they were hanging out with Rebecca Nurse, Mary Bradbury, and Elizabeth Howe having dark baptisms like Sabrina Spellman from The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. At the end of the Sandover mess, more than 40 people were accused. On August 2nd, the court of Oyer and Terminer met for the third time, with Martha Carrier as the first to stand trial. Since so many people were eager to say their piece about Martha's incredible time as a witch, it was no-brainer for the court to convict her. Apparently, Martha was set up to be the queen of hell as well. I mean, if you've got your eye on a lefty prize, I guess that's a good one. Might as well sit on the side of Satan. I don't know. Do what you gotta do. Alright, so up next were John Proctor, Elizabeth Proctor, John Willard, George Jacobs, and George Burroughs. The Proctors were found guilty. Obviously. Thanks to the evidence and Mary Warren's statement. At this point, none of the convictions are a shock. There were two petitions making the rounds for John and Elizabeth, signed by 51 people. Didn't do a thing, okay? Elizabeth did get a stay of execution until she gave birth to her child. So lucky, okay? Her husband was going to hang, and she got to finish out her pregnancy in prison, which obviously had the best conditions and care for a pregnant woman. That's where I'd want to stay. Yeah, I mean, I totally, when I think of 1692 Boston prison, picture hospital beds and, and medication or... Oh, wait. Too much time traveling. Yeah, sorry. You're getting confused. <laughs> All right. So George Jacobs was also found guilty. Again, shocker. Followed by John Willard, a constable. This dude had the audacity to go against the grain. He didn't want to arrest some of the people he was sent to arrest. He ran to save his life, but eventually the Putnams caught him. And as soon as he was in the same vicinity as the afflicted girls, they started doing their thing. His own in-laws came out against him, said he used magic to murder his nephew. With in-laws like that, who the hell needs enemies? Then, 81-year-old Bray Wilkins testified that his bladder pain was because of Willard. Game, set, match. I just have a problem with all of this magic that they're using to murder people. Like, if you're using magic to murder someone, wouldn't you use magic to, I don't know, escape prison? Or magic yourself away from being arrested? Or... 
use magic to make people not think you're a witch? Adrian, you're being sensible. This I- is not about sense or logic. Yeah, I mean, apparently these witches are just so crafty and cr- murdering people with their spirits, but just too stupid to use magic to escape. That just, it, I can't. Did you hear that? She can't. Yeah, I just can't. Okay, so last but not least was the Reverend George Burroughs. And man, were people eager to see him on trial, including some Puritan bigwigs like Increase Mather. Burroughs was a minister who was also a witch. You know, the guy who was once the minister of Salem Village. In their minds, he was the witch wizard head honcho. 30 people testified against Burroughs, and eight of the confessed, stating he was the one in charge of their witchy circus. So the afflicted girls were in rare form during the trial. They couldn't say a word against him because then they'd start choking. I mean, look at that witch go. So they managed somehow, anyway, to get words through because the spirits of his first two wives and the wife and daughter of Reverend Diodot Lawson, you know, the other guy who once used to be a minister in Salem, came for a visit. It was a why'd you murder us, bud sort of visit. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Two weeks after their trials, John Proctor, John Willard, George Jacobs, Martha Carrier, and George Burroughs were taken to Gallows Hill and hanged. Margaret Jacobs, granddaughter of George Jacobs, did ask for George Burroughs' forgiveness the night before he was killed. Burroughs gave it, and then they prayed together. Margaret also recanted her confession and her accusations regarding her grandfather and George Burroughs, but obviously no one cared. So, just like with Burroughs' trial, a shit ton of people showed up to watch him and his comrades hang. They went out with dignity and never once said they were anything but innocent. Okay, so Burroughs made such a great speech at the end that people actually started second-guessing things for a second. But only for a second, because, you know, Cotton Mather got up there, stepped in, made it all better. No worries. We're in the right. Everybody, ease your conscience. Their bodies were buried in shallow graves, again, or between the rocks on the hill, just stuffed into the crevices like so much rubbish. Like Rebecca Nurse, George Jacobs' family retrieved his body in the dead of night and buried him on their land. Business continued as usual. The tormented constantly naming new tormentors, a few of whom were from Salem, with a ton of others from towns near Salem, including Andover, yet again. And then more names were added when people confessed to being witches and accused others. It was a disgusting, never-ending, vicious cycle. There were apparently quite a few witch meetups during that time. According to Abigail Williams, 40 people went to one. Susanna Post, a confessed witch, said she went to one that had 200. According to her, there were 500 witches in the area. My God, that is so many witches. Was anyone not a witch? That's I mean, my but that number, who knows? All right. So Mary Toothaker of Balerica said there were actually 305 at a meeting. So many witches, so little time. But I do have one question. That is one fucking exact number. <laughs> 305? Yeah, it makes me wonder, like, did she sit there and tally things? Right? Was she, like, just sitting there with a notebook, just, like... One, two, three, cross. Right. Oh, no, no. It was probably a really, really modernized kind of witch meeting where everybody had to come in and sign their name on the sign-in sheet. Oh, that would make so yeah. much more and then sense. And then you just count the names up and you're like, ah, oh, there's 305 of us at this meeting. This is so wonderful that we all came together for evil. So they had to sign a Book of the Beast when they came in? No, I think they did that before, remember? Because they do their, ba- their baptism, I guess, according to some of these people. And then, no, it's like, you know, when you enter class and you had to sign your name to, like... So that the professor could mark you as being there. That's what they did. Someone was taking the roll call. Mm. How modern. Right? I mean, good for them. Such organized witch meetings. But wait, does 305 include her? That's a good question. I don't know. All right, sorry. (laughs) We digress. (laughs) 
All right, so some of the confessed witches then said they were plotting to destroy anything and everything and make the place fit for the devil and his minions. Clearly, the way to do this was by making it really, really obvious that they were witches in the employ of the devil and then continuing to out other witches. I mean, it sounds counterproductive, but hey, what do we know? Like, it just makes me wonder, why, why do they just wear name tags? Hello, my name is Sarah Good and I'm with Satan. I'd just make it easier to identify them. Then no one has to guess. All right, so it's at this point that more... Then the accused loved ones started realizing that maybe the trials weren't the best idea ever. When Major Robert Pike's neighbor, Mary Bradbury, was accused, he wrote to Judge Jonathan Corwin about spectral evidence. He didn't like it, and argued that the devil could go around wearing the faces of people who weren't witches. He didn't want the accused to be hastily condemned, thought it was better to wait for concrete evidence than to rely on spectral evidence and execute an innocent. This was par for the course for Robert Pike. He spoke his mind when he thought shit stank. Yet again, it didn't do a damn thing. At the beginning of September, six more people were brought before the court of Oyer and Terminer. Mary Bradbury, Martha Corey, Mary Eastie, Rebecca Nurse's sister, Alice Parker, and, I'm probably pronouncing this last name completely incorrectly, Pudiator, and Dorcas also may be pronouncing this last name wrong, so, you know, it's spelled H-O-A-R, um, whore? I don't know. But anyway, so the verdict for all six. Guilty. Mary Bradbury was married to Captain Thomas Bradbury, who was a VIP in the town of Salisbury. We're no longer looking at the unfortunate souls of Salem Village here. You know, the downtrodden, the easy targets. 118 people signed a petition supporting her and her devotion to her faith. Robert Pike testified on her behalf. He was also, ironically enough, the magistrate of Salisbury, by the way. No small fish. And so did James Allen, her own minister. Didn't make a dent. After those six poor souls, nine more people were tried and convicted. Abigail Faulkner, Margaret Scott, Wilmot Red, and Mary Parker. All guilty verdicts, all to be executed. Samuel Wardwell had originally confessed, but then changed his mind during his trial and pled not guilty. The court's verdict? Guilty, of course. The sentence? Say it with us now. Hanging! Hanging. So then came Anne Foster, Mary Lacey Sr., the daughter of Anne, Rebecca Earns, and Abigail Hobbs, who all confessed and originally pled guilty during the indictment. They were also convicted and said to be executed. The court of lawyer and terminer then took another break. It was time to deal with Giles Corey, the guy who first implied his wife was a witch and then ended up being accused himself. So he pled not guilty at the indictment, but wouldn't agree to be judged by a jury. In fact, he didn't say anything at all when they asked him, which was kind of smart. If he didn't say anything at all, he couldn't be put on trial until he did, right? So next step, try to torture the answer out of him. The process was known as peine forte dure, strong and hard punishment. Rocks were piled on top of the boards placed on Giles Corey's chest. More and more rocks were added every time he didn't answer their question. Dude, can we try you now? Stubborn until the end, Giles Corey was pressed to death. His last words allegedly were, more weight. This may or may not be true, we don't know, but that's the established take on things. And pretty badass, if we do say so ourselves. And we do. Always. Right? So before Giles and Martha Corey died, the Salem Village Church had them excommunicated. They sure did love to add salt to the wounds, and for Martha, that would have been devastating. On September 22nd, three days after Giles Corey was tortured to death, Martha Corey was finally executed. We can only imagine that she was marched up there, with her head held high. She swore she was innocent until the end. She reserved her final words for a prayer, and then she was gone. What an incredibly strong woman. 
Again. Mm -hmm. Drink on blood. Choke on it. (laughs) That's my take. And he's not angry at all. (laughs) Not even a little bit. Okay, so Margaret Scott, Mary Eastie, Alice Parker, and Pudiator, William Red, Salem, Wardwell, and Mary Parker were hanged on the same day as Martha. Mary Eastie and Sarah Cloyce, the sisters of Rebecca Nurse, had a petition delivered to the court that asked for an honest trial with actual evidence brought forward. You know, the thing that they didn't have. Yeah, no. Just the specter did it. As we know, absolutely nothing came of this. Mary was hanged. Luckily, there was one sort of happy ending. Sarah Cloyce was never brought to trial. In January 1693, the charges were dismissed. Sarah Cloyce got to live. But at what a cost, man. No, I'm not going to (laughs) cry. I refuse to cry. Some of the people sentenced to death didn't face the gallows. This included those who confessed. Remember that convoluted thing? You confess, you live. (laughs) Ha ha. Okay. It's the most ridiculous thing. Don't even get me started. Okay. So these people included Rebecca Earns, Ann Foster, Mary Lacey Sr., Abigail Hobbs, and Mary Bradbury. Mary took the opportunity to escape, and kudos to her for doing it. Her friends helped her out and made sure she couldn't be found. Like Elizabeth Proctor, Abigail Fogner couldn't be put to death just yet since she was pregnant. Instead, she had to focus on living through her imprisonment and childbirth. And again, in those awful conditions, ugh. Out of all the people we mentioned so far who were hanged, not one of them was someone who had confessed to any sort of witchery. Only the ones who pled not guilty were executed. Alright? It seriously is a most fucked up sense of justice. I just... Right, confess and you live. Deny it and die. Oh, okay. So lie about who you are or keep to the truth and die for it. I don't... Well done, Salem. Honestly, it makes as much sense as when they would toss witches into, like, a body of water. Oh, the ducking? Yeah. If you sink, you were innocent. Oh, look, you died. Oh, but at least you died innocent. Right? That's always nice. If you floated, you were a witch. And then you could be killed another way. Yeah. So here's the really good news. Adrian would have died by drowning. (laughs) (laughs) I would float (laughs) because of my size. (laughs) So they'd probably, like, stone me to death (laughs) or burn me, hang me. I don't know. Take one. It is. All three. It's ridiculous. It's fucking ridiculous. People in witches, man. All right. So while the accusations seemed to die down in Salem, they were on the rise in other towns, with nine people named as witches in Gloucester. Luckily, by this point, some people had seen enough. Increase Mather wrote a treatise that poo-pooed spectral evidence and the ever-so-reliable touch test. It was called The Cases of Conscience Concerning Evil Spirits Personating Men. Love yep, it. They loved long book titles at that point. It was unnecessary. It's the way they wrote their novels. Okay. He even went as far as to say it were better that ten suspected witches should escape than that one innocent person should be condemned. Taken from A Delusion of Satan by Francis Hill. All right, so this was an interesting change in tune. Just saying. Now, Thomas Brattle, a rich Bostonian merchant and scientist, penned a letter wondering why the trials were happening in the first place. Should they really be spending their time hunting witches and putting them on trial? Really? He basically trampled all over the evidence they used. The touch test, confessions, the tormented girls, and shit on the judges a bit, too. High five, Thomas. All right. Were they really doing this for the good of all mankind? Why didn't they just chase down the wealthy witches, too, or arrest accused witches who were related to them? Finally, someone was using logic and rational thought, the two things I love most. 
Bridal also shit on the tormented girls as well. You know, too much stock was put into what the afflicted girls had to say and who the accused, even when they didn't even know the people they were accusing. As for the people who confessed, he believed some were just straight up crazy. Others were tortured into lying and the rest were actually possessed by Satan himself and not really worth listening to as a result. I was with him for two of those. Yeah. <laughs> now, in October... Most of those from Andover who confessed recanted. They also took back their accusations against other witches. Was sanity finally coming back to the colony? On October 12th, Governor Phipps wrote a letter to England. No more witch trials. Not unless it's super duper urgent and like really, really needed. He had finally seen the light. Why? Not because he saw the light. It's because the afflicted girls had gone one step too far. They had named his own wife, Lady Mary Phipps, as a witch. In addition to Lady Phipps, they also named Judge Jonathan Corwin's mother-in-law, the former governor's sons, and Reverend John Hale's wife. It was only when family members of the VIPs were being accused that those same VIPs realized shit was rotten. Try all the witches. Wait, my wife? His wife? His sons? This is all really bad. No, no, like really bad. No, no, no more trials. Witches? What witches? So this is the only time we can thank those girls for accusing a few more people. After Phipps's letter to England, people who were being accused as witches weren't sent to prison. They, and some of the people already sitting in prison, were released on bail. Not that there were a crazy number of accusations after October. At the end of October, the court of Oyer and Terminer was no more, thankfully. On November 25th, a new court system was finally set up for the new colony charter. The Superior Court of Judicature would be the main court where capital crimes would be tried. Yes, that did include witch trials. The new judges for this court were assigned on December 7th, and oh look, a bunch of familiar faces. William Staunton, Samuel Sewell, Waite Winthrop, and John Richards. Like a really bad rash, you just couldn't get away from them. No matter how hard you tried. But there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Thomas Danforth, the dude who was deputy governor once upon a time, was appointed as well. He was someone who didn't like the trials. Not at all. The Superior Court met for the first time in Salem on January 3rd, 1693, ready to put an end to the trials. But Phipps wanted more than that. He wasn't done working his own brand of magic. With the jails bursting with people awaiting trial in the cold, cold cells, unfortunately HVAC wasn't yet invented, Phipps used his power for good. Mm, well, kinda. Some of the accused witches were released on bail, as stated earlier. Would have been nice if all of them were able to go home to their families and fireplaces and much more comfortable beds, but that wasn't going to happen. We're not sure who was allowed to go and who was forced to stay. Honestly, things weren't going to change at all if Phipps didn't do more than just let some people out on bail. He set up the Superior Court, fine, but if left to their own devices, events really could follow the same pattern as before, especially since some of the judges had already been in the thick of the trials. So, not going to happen on Phipps's watch. Finally, his eyes were open. Dude made sure they were all on the same page. Don't be stupid, be fair. No more spectral evidence or touch test nonsense. When the judges actually got together in January to talk about what would count as evidence, one of the judges made it clear that those two forms of evidence were worthless. At least somebody had a brain. Now, Stoughton, the one without the brain, on the other hand, he threw a fit. He saw witches everywhere. He wanted to get rid of all of them. And now he couldn't rely on the two pieces of evidence that actually made conviction a certainty. What a fucking disaster for him. Too bad. So sad. Most of the Superior Court didn't see things his way. Sucks to suck, bud. With that sorted, it was time to get down to business, and things were about to take a turn for the better. Over 50 people were forced to put their futures into the hands of the court. In a matter of weeks, the charges brought against 30-plus people were dropped. They were free and clear. 
Lucky them. Now, only 22 of the accused actually had to stand trial, and of those, only three were convicted. How'd they convict anyone when they couldn't use spectral evidence or the touch test? Because Elizabeth Johnson, Mary Post, and Sarah Wardwell, wife of Samuel Wardwell, the dude who'd been executed back in September, decided to tell all and sundry that they were witches. Now, why they did that remains a mystery. Stoughton wasted zero time getting everything in order to hang these ladies. And while he was at it, he was going to add in the names of the five people who got a stay of execution back when the court of Oyer and Terminer was still running shit, which included Elizabeth Proctor. This was probably as close to a holiday as it got for Stoughton. Sadly, for Stoughton, that is, Phipps came to the rescue. No executions. Not until the king and queen themselves let him know what he should do. I mean, that's fair in the grand scheme of things, but in the meantime, everybody, cool your heels. Phipps for president, anyone? I don't know that I would go that far. I mean, okay. it took him a while to kind of get to this conclusion, and it was only because his own wife was accused. All right, let's rephrase. Phipps for president of the I'm Willing to Change Club? Okay, that that's all right. Okay, we'll go with that? Yeah. All right. So Stoughton was super pissed. When he found out on February 1st, he stormed out of the courtroom in a big huff, leaving Danforth to take care of things in Charlestown. Super professional, right? Not the guy you want in charge of a banana cart, let alone someone's life and death. So Stoughton put his big boy pants on in April to continue hearing cases. Good for him. What a sacrifice. After literally having a temper tantrum that lasted two months, okay? So things during these trials followed the new pattern that had been established since the Superior Court was formed. All of the accused were cleared of the charges. They were free, except not really. They may have been acquitted, but get this. This is just this is on the same level as um people paying their executioner to lop off their head. Okay? So the people in prison had to pay for the privilege of rotting in that prison. Does this make sense to anyone at all? Anywhere, honestly, because seriously, what the actual fuck was that? These people were innocent, thrown in prison for absolutely no reason, the charges all dropped, and they still had to pay the fees? You know what? They should have asked Stoughton to pay their fees. I would have robbed his house. I mean, what the- I, I just- I can't get over that. It-, it the, Adrian's speechless. This I, yeah, never I, happened. This I, I, never happened. <laughs> just because it's like, they know that those people are innocent, that they're not witches, and yet they're still like, well, you're going to rot there until you can pay. And if you can't pay, I guess this is home now. Right. They made it sound like they went on vacation to a bed and breakfast, and now right. they're refusing to pay their bill. No, 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 no. You shove them in a cell against their will. Right. Chain them to the walls, which apparently, by the way, the chains were supposed to keep their specters from flying about and torturing people. Okay. Whatever. And then you're saying, P.S., I know that we shoved you in here and we made you miserable. And, you know, some of your friends might have actually died in here. But if you want to go home, you got to pay the jailer. Right? Your bill is due. Yeah, no. Okay, so Phipps and the judges should have absolutely covered that. Oh, and the Putnams, since, you know, they were behind a lot of that shit. And really, any other asshole who accused those pe people of witchcraft, they're just saying, they should have, you know, put out the money. But until all the fees were paid, little Susie What's-Her-Face and John Jacob Jinkaheimer Schmidt were stuck in prison. That might sound easy enough, but when a lot of people were jailed, most of their possessions, including property and land, were taken away from them. What money were they going to use to get themselves out? Eh, court didn't give a shit. Not their problem. Unfortunately for some people, things didn't end happily ever after. Lydia Dustin was a sweet, sweet, sweet granny from Reading. She'd been in jail for about 10 months before she was cleared of all charges. Super yay. 
But what should have been a happy occasion soon turned into tragedy. She died in prison in March 1693, a month after she was exonerated, before her family could even get the money together to buy her freedom. Picture your grandma rotting in prison, okay? I don't know about you, but Adrian and I would be ready to climb the walls and set some fields on fire because you do not touch our grandma. Dude, I totally would have staged a prison break, okay? It would not have ended well for most of the people if my grandma was locked away in prison. Dude, grandma never would have been in there. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Grandma's too feisty. (laughs) Which would have gotten her, like, sentenced to prison. But don't you worry. We would have gotten her out. (laughs) Yeah, and she's crafty. All right, so after Charlestown, the Superior Court was off to Boston to start trying people for the county of Suffolk. Good news. Everyone was acquitted, including John Alden, who we mentioned in part one. He had escaped the trials and was in hiding, so he was acquitted by proxy. He got to arrive in Boston to the good news that he was once again a free man. Then, in May 1693, Phipps made a divine move. All of the charges were dropped against everyone who was still in prison. There was no point in continuing on with the trials when pretty much every case was relying on boatloads of spectral evidence and the touch test. He made sure that everyone in prison was let out, or rather, they had the option to leave provided they could pay the prison. You know, back to this whole, here's your bill. For being chained to the wall, you're welcome. About 150 people in total were able to breathe fresh air again, but there were a lot of people who were stuck there because no money, no exit. Some people felt bad for those still in prison and paid their fees. Such was the case with Margaret Jacobs. Her family had zero money to get her out, so some random dude paid her fees. But said dude was also an asshole. I don't know if he was expecting to be paid back as soon as she was released or something. I don't even know if he was like, I'm going to pay this and you have to pay me back. Who knows? But he eventually took Margaret to court for the debt. Took some time, but she was able to pay it off. Shame he couldn't just do it out of the goodness of his own heart. Then there was her father, George Jacobs Jr., the son of the George Jacobs who had been hanged already. The man had run from Massachusetts so he wouldn't be arrested, leaving his wife and daughter behind, both of whom were arrested and imprisoned. Super charming, right? While Grandpa Jacobs' property had been confiscated when he was arrested, the family was able to hang on to their house and some land. They remained in Salem Village after the trials, but they were dirt poor. Tichuba, on the other hand, was sold to a random slave trader. There was no way Paris was going to pay her fees and get her out. So he somehow finagled it that she was sold to pay her own fees. What happened afterward to her and her husband, John Indian, is a mystery. Then there's Edward and Sarah Bishop. They were able to pay their way out of prison because they still had some property they were able to use to pay their fees. Not much is known about what happened to them after. They did have 12 kids to take care of. Who knows who looked after them while their parents were jailed? It's completely possible that no one did. And that just makes me so sad because I'm picturing 12 children just wandering the village begging for food. Stop that. Stop that right now. (laughs) Yeah. But like this was pretty much the same story for a lot of the accused. The only problem was as soon as the trials ended and people were back home, they wanted restitution. No, not money, though I'm sure that wouldn't have been rejected. But it really came down to the reputations that had been dragged through the mud. Okay, families were destroyed as a result of this. Innocent people were killed, their bodies treated with little to no care, and their families were forced to carry both cherished memories of their loved ones and the shame the village heaped on their names. It was a complete and utter shit show. Most of the people only wanted a clean slate for themselves and for the loved ones no longer with them. In 1700, Abigail Faulkner from Andover made a case to the general court about wiping her slate clean. Spectral evidence was the only kind of evidence brought against her, which was later deemed invalid. So shouldn't she be cleared? Everywhere she went, people shunned her and treated her like a piece of shit because of the trials. 
Yeah, yeah, that sucks. Sorry for your loss. But other than some half-assed apology, nothing happened. Two years later, more people made the same petition, either for themselves or their relatives. This included John Proctor's son and Mary Eastie's husband. This time, they wouldn't be ignored. Sort of. A bill was passed by the Massachusetts House of Representatives stating that spectral evidence would never again be used. The people who were jailed or killed as a result of the trial shouldn't be looked down on. It was more of a shame, shame bill, but didn't really accomplish much. In 1703, a bunch of Essex County ministers wrote to the general court on behalf of the accused, asking that their names be cleared since the girls doing all the accusing were dirty little liars. The general court must have had cotton balls in their ears because they still didn't lift a finger. One of the ministers involved was Joseph Green, so he's the guy who took Paris's place as minister of Salem Village. But we'll get to him a little bit later. There was another petition in May 1709, this time asking for money as well as clean slates, and more petitions were sent to the general court in September 1710. Okay, this time from Mary Eastie's husband and the families of Elizabeth Howe, Sarah Wilds, Mary Bradbury, Edward and Sarah Bishop, George Burroughs, Giles and Martha Corey, and Rebecca Nurse. Maybe they got sick and tired of all these people bombarding them, but the general court finally did something in October 1710. It wasn't perfect, but it was a start. A really slow, teeth-pulling start. The act they passed made good on clearing the names of the people who'd reached out to them. Basically, if they received a petition from John Smith, alive or dead, but they didn't get one for Cindy Luhu, who had been hanged, only John's conviction would be erased and his name made nice and new and shiny. Cindy would live, well, her name would live, in infamy because no one spoke for her. Fair? Not even a fucking little. Should they have reversed the convictions for everyone? Fuck yes. Okay? Unfortunately, Bridget Bishop, Susanna Martin, Alice Parker, Anne Pudiator, Wilmot Red, and Margaret Scott, just to name a few, were not cleared. No one spoke for them. At the end of 1711, the general court paid out, but again, it was only to those who had sent in petitions, and it wasn't equal distribution of funds. The Proctors got the most money, since John Proctor was the richest person who was murdered. Then George Jacobs's family got the next highest sum, and George Burroughs' family the third. Speaking of George Burroughs, we didn't mention this, but when he was arrested, the, his wife basically walked out, I think took like one or two of like their actual kids, her biological children with him, and then left the rest of his children from his previous marriages to fend for themselves. Really, really nice woman. So aside from those three families, the general court handed out money as if it was playing a game of pick a card. Oh, you lost a husband and son? Here's 15 pounds. You accused people and almost died for it, you poor thing? Here's 10 pounds. She was rich? 12 pounds. Your wife was poor? 30 pounds. It made no sense. I don't know how they split that up, but just nothing. There's no logic to it. Especially since only a fraction, 24 families to be precise, of the people connected to the trials one way or another received anything. Everyone else was left out in the cold, desolate expanse of go-fuck-yourself town. The problem with Salem after the trials was that many people would have been more than happy to sweep everything under the rug, wash their hands of the whole thing, and walk off whistling a jolly little tune. Too bad for them, that just didn't sit well with some people. Joseph Green, the guy who took over after Samuel Paris, got to work writing a wrong. Remember how Martha Corey had been excommunicated before she died? Well, Green voided that wonderful decision in 1703. Take that, Salem. All right. Then in 1712, Salem Church was basically strong-armed into doing the same thing with Rebecca Nurse and Giles Corey. 
Salem may have wanted to forget what had happened only a decade before, but the families weren't going to let them. Well done, friends. High fives all around. A lot of people involved with the trials either A, were all eh about the thing that happened, or B, just flat out didn't think they did anything wrong. Now, that's not to say that some people didn't feel bad for the part they played in the trials, because some people sure as fuck did. Twelve of the dudes who sat on the jury during some of the trials, plus Thomas Fisk, signed a statement admitting as much. I mean, that's great and all that they can take responsibility for what they did and that they had a conscience, but how does that help the people who were already dead? How does it help the families of the people who died? Not everyone got to come home. The situation called for something more than an I'm sorry letter. Yeah, like you can't bring back the dead, so too little too late. Unless there was actually witchcraft. You guys should see the look he just Okay. So another one of those official I feel really bad about shit documents came from Samuel Sewell, who served as one of the judges on the court of Oyer and Terminer. He gave it to the general court. In this letter, he blamed himself for the court of Oyer and Terminer and said he was sorry. He knew things had gone terribly wrong, but what chafes about his whole apology was that at the end of it, he believed that no one was really at fault since people didn't really mean to hurt anyone. Yeah, okay. I was with him till that point. Well, I mean, if you didn't mean it... Then that makes it okay, right? Yeah. No. Now, John Hale also apologized, but of course, there were always the guys who were never wrong and always right. John Hathorne and William Stoughton were most assuredly not sorry, okay? They probably didn't even know the meaning of the word. I'd be surprised if they weren't patting themselves on the back for a job well done. And because karma isn't always a bitch, they got to live long, successful lives with no black mark on their records. Assholes. Right? The irony of it all? Hathorne ended up buried near the family members of people he sent to prison. That is some fucked up shit. In 1992, a memorial was erected, dedicated to the people who were murdered. Hathorne's near that one, too. Big yuck, right there. Cotton Mather, on the other hand, didn't have the magical life he thought he deserved. To start with, he wasn't sorry. At all. He stayed a minister, but he was super bitter about it. When Robert Califf wrote More Wonders of the Invisible World in 1697, Cotton was really pissed off. It painted him in a really shitty light. So, you know, More Wonders was definitely nonfiction. Well done, Mr. Califf. He spent the rest of his life doing a remarkable impersonation of the kid on the playground no one wanted to play with. No one liked him, and all those unappreciative people didn't even care that he tried to help them. Help, in quotes. Alright, somebody called the Wambulance because he was being such a fucking baby, okay? He wasn't wrong, no one really liked him, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that he was in the thick of the trials. Yeah, but like, if you don't, if you actually take a look at that and you go, yeah, no, we did, we found some witches, and, and like, you know, totally got rid of them, and guys, let's pat each other on the back, because, uh... Awesome. Awesome work here in Salem. No, of course, no one likes you. So the only decent thing he did do before he passed away was supporting the creation of a smallpox vaccine. That may or may not have had something to do with the fact that two of his children got sick. So, again, it's a self-serving kind of thing. He died at the age of 66. Now, let's talk about Samuel Paris for a hot second, alright? He's a funny one. He admitted that if you squint a little and turn your head to the side, he was kind of, sort of, maybe a little bit to blame. It was safe to say that people wanted him gone. Did Paris get the hint? No, he was oblivious. Absolutely fucking totally oblivious. So the people who wanted him gone, aka the majority of the village, decided to make it as obvious as possible. Paris wasn't getting paid. People kept making a fuss about him. They tried to get the parsonage back from him and they were 100% not going to enter the meeting house with a hammer to fix up the place. It got to the point that Phipps stepped in 
and other reverends were brought in to ease Paris's grip off the village. In November 1694, he finally said, I'm sorry. You know, Samuel Paris style. Not only had Satan fooled him, but That Sa- darn Satan. <laughs> God, he's so crafty. All right? But Satan had fooled everyone in the village, and so they must all accept the blame and forgive and move forward. That darn Satan. <laughs> all right, so that was too little, too late. Also, telling the villagers it was everyone's fault was a super bad move. Yeah, people don't like to be told that they're also responsible for the thing they're responsible for. In April 1695, ministers and church elders, including Increase Mother, came to Salem to observe and report. They came up with this answer. All the bullshit and anger since the trials was all of Salem Village's fault. They were kind enough to let Paris know that he was more than welcome to leave, hint hint, and no one would think less of him. Surprise, surprise. Paris refused to go anywhere. It wouldn't be until a year later that Paris finally gave up the fight and called it a day. But. But. He wasn't moving. Oh no. No, no, no. He was still living in the Salem Parsonage, since he had nowhere to go. Probably because no one wanted him anywhere, but, you know, that's just on the down low. Right. Like, I get it, because you don't have anywhere, but, like, I don't know, if all of the villages... Is ready to, like, come at you with pitchforks. Right, and torches, then maybe you should hunker down in the woods. But that's just us. You know, we're more survivalists. (laughs) When the going gets tough, the tough get going. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So honestly, it shouldn't come as a surprise. People were pissed. All right. What? The dude still thinks he can live here? No, 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 and no. So the obvious solution was to sue him to get him the hell out. All right, and I wonder if this is where the birth of, like, the sue-happy, like, culture comes from. The American legal system, sue everyone for everything. Yeah. Be- even when you fall into a fountain because you're stupid and we're looking at your phone. I'm just saying. Or drank hot coffee, even though the thing says hot Caution coffee. Caution hot. Yeah. All right, so Paris sued them right back since he hadn't been paid in ages. Again, suing, suing, lots of suing going on. This was seriously a village of sue-happy people. So in 1697, Samuel Sewell, Waite Winthrop, and a new player by the name of Elisha Cook came to Salem to sort things out. In the end, Paris left Salem and the village agreed to pay him some back pay. That was basically as good as it was going to get for him. Yay compromises. He died in 1720 and left whatever he could to his children, and yes, that also meant Betty, who was a married woman by that point. Leaving Salem, when she did, honestly, was probably the best damn thing that ever happened to her. She married a shoemaker, had five kids, and lived a nice long life. With Paris no longer minister, it was time to find a new one. Salem Village had a hard time finding and keeping a minister before the trials. After the trials, it was even harder. Who wanted to be the minister in the village where all of the madness began? But they were finally able to find someone by the name of Joseph Green, the guy we already mentioned a few times. Paris came in like a bull in a china shop, trying to cram togetherness down everyone's throats, whereas Green came in and made it more of a question. So how's about we all get along, mend fences, make peace, be good Puritans? The people of Salem agreed. This was exactly the kind of minister they needed. No, really, this was really the guy who was perfect to head up Salem Village right after the trials. It also helped that he was only 22, so he was still fresh of face and full of hope, and had a new take on the situation. He spent years trying to get the people of Salem to come together as one community and work past their issues. He didn't want the hatred and animosity to continue. So Green made sure the Putnams and the nurses sat together during services. Two families who did not get along. He made sure that when he voided the excommunication of Martha Corey, the people of Salem agreed with his decision. Most of them did. 
1706, he worked with Anne Putnam to write her own I'm Sorry for the Witch Trial Shitstorm Apology to the People of Salem for the Havoc She Caused. Her parents passed away seven years earlier, leaving 19-year-old Anne with seven little brothers and sisters to look after. She wanted to become a member of the church, but she couldn't just walk in and say, Hey guys, I'm a member now. No, no. In order to become a church member, she had to confess all of her sins to all the church members. Cue the apology. Rebecca Nurse's son even read it to make sure it was kosher. He gave it a thumbs up. So, on August 25th, 1706, Reverend Green read her apology to the church while Anne stood next to him, in front of everyone. She was welcomed into the church with open arms. Uh, Semi-open arms? Honestly, who knows? What's important is that she became a member. But she died nine years later in her mid-30s. Her health wasn't the best. As for the other girls involved with the trials, information is a little spotty. Elizabeth Booth, Sarah Churchill, and Mary Walcott all eventually got married. Mercy Lewis did things a little bit backwards, especially for that time. She got pregnant, then got married. We're not sure if it's even the same to the father. So Sarah Churchwell was fine for having sex before marriage. Remember, if they're married, they can sex it up. If not, naughty naughty. Most of these girls did what quite a few families affected by the trials had already done at this point. They left Salem. Abigail Williams, Elizabeth Hubbard, Susanna Sheldon, and Mary Warren basically fell off the face of the earth. Did they get married? Leave Salem Village? No one knows. Okay, maybe we know a little bit about Sheldon. She left Salem and moved to Rhode Island and maybe died there without getting married. That last bit is up in the air. Quick flash forward to today. There's a memorial for Rebecca Nurse in Salem. Remember how we mentioned that her family snuck into the cemetery at night and took her body to bury on their land? Well, a little ways off from the family home stands her memorial. Funnily enough, George Jacobs is buried not too far away from the memorial. Unlike the other victims, he is literally the only person who has a concrete resting place. We know where it is, and we know that it's him. Yep, you heard that right. Not even Rebecca Nurse's body has been found since her grave was unmarked when her family laid her to rest. Though we do know she's resting somewhere in the family graveyard where her memorial is. Now, how did his body get there after his family took his body back to bury on Jacob's land? Well, in the 1860s, the Jacob's family was doing who knows what when they came across the bones of good old George. Since they knew about their family history, they knew they'd come across him. So they did what all sensible people do when they find a body. They reburied him. Unfortunately, the Jacobs weren't living on the land any longer in the 1950s. So the next people to come across poor George was the town of Danvers, formerly known as Salem Village. They unearthed the bones, stuck them in a box, and put George Jacobs into storage like a pair of unused sneakers. It would take another 40-ish years before George was put to rest once more, hopefully for the last time. In 1992, he was buried in the Nurse family graveyard with a nice new headstone with his name on it. His headstone reads, Here lies buried the body of George Jacobs Sr., deceased August the 19th, 1692. Not only that, but he had the most amazing inscription. It's the quote from his examination that we love so much. Well, burn me or hang me. I will stand in the truth of Christ. Rest in peace, George. So earlier we mentioned that Phipps ended the trials. When all was said and done, Phipps basically enacted the first major American cover-up. People weren't allowed to talk, write, or think about the trials. The trials were a disaster from start to finish. To put it lightly. The court of Oyer and Terminer existed only because Phipps was behind it. He dismantled it, which meant he also had the power to set everyone free who was rotting in prison. He was the governor, after all. But as we know, he didn't just let everyone out. Phipps' supporters were starting to fade away. The whole dirty business with the trials tainted him in their eyes. 
they lost any faith they had in him. Then there were the legal changes. For some years after the trials, women could do no wrong. Seriously, no one in Essex County was going to convict a woman even if she was caught red-handed with the stolen silver stuffed into her dress. And thanks to the general court, the charge of witchcraft was no longer a death sentence, starting in December of 1692. Just some jail time. Thank goodness for small favors. Magic wasn't a high crime anymore. Merlin would be thrilled. But if the witcher wizard in question used their magical talents to kill someone, they'd get a short drop and a sudden stop. Joke's on them, since there wasn't any evidence the courts could use to convict someone of witchcraft. It's a huge win when you consider that there would never again be another execution as a result of a witch trial in America, after Salem. Then people started thinking, were witches even a real thing? Was magic really afoot? The answer was yes. While a lot of magistrates were all enlightened and there's not a witch among us, the public... However, still very much believed in witches and evil spirits. They went as far as to seek out charms and other witchy trinkets to help keep the bad juju away. Kind of funny since they were using magic to ward off magic. Okay. But irony of ironies, you know, trials somehow made people more religious. Everything ministers have been trying to accomplish since way before the trials was now being fulfilled. But it was different this time around. Instead of people looking around them and seeing the devil lurking behind every bush and shed, it was all about Johnny Appleseed, party of one, doing his own religious thing. People finally started focusing on themselves instead of others or working as a religious collective. They actually started owning up to the bad shit they did. Oh, happy day. Okay, truly, we can get behind that movement. Speaking of movements... Not all heroes wear capes. A Quaker by the name of Thomas Small ended the three-year gag order Phipps instituted to keep people from speaking out about the trials. He didn't just open his mouth and whisper down the lane to a group of people. Oh no, he published a book, using his name, like a badass motherfucker. Alright, here was a guy who wasn't afraid of causing trouble. He'd been doing it in Salem for decades. At some point in his life, he converted from Anglicanism to Quakerism and became the man in charge of Salem Friends in the late 1660s, which was a bold move in and of itself considering Quakers were not welcome in those parts. The main sticking points for Puritans? No ministers, in, you know, the Quaker faith, and anyone and everyone could say their piece in a Quaker meeting, even women, which probably made the Puritans want to upchuck. There was a point in Massachusetts history where being a Quaker and strolling into the Bay Colony was punishable by death. Four Quakers were executed, read, murdered, for it. Anything seen as other was not kosher with the Puritans. So get the heck out of Dodge, my friends, and beware all who enter Massachusetts. But since England got really mad about it, they had to take the death penalty for Quakerism off the table. No matter what, Thomas stuck around. Points for grit, dude. There was a possibility that Thomas was one of the people who supported the trials in the beginning, but there's nothing concrete. John Hale reported that Maul accused Bridget Bishop of killing his son and that his wife took the stand against her. As for documentation to prove that, there isn't any. It was what he did later that truly matters. In 1695, he published his book under a super long name that, frankly, was unnecessary. Ready for it? The book was called Truth Held Forth and Maintained According to the Testimony of the Holy Prophets Christ and His Apostles Recorded in the Holy Scriptures, a Description and Defense of Quaker Theological Tenets and Practices. (sighs) Like the title suggests, the book bashes the Puritans and got into how they treated Quakers like pieces of shit. And in this lovely attack on Massachusetts, Thomas made sure to mention exactly what he thought about the Salem Witch Trials and how people handled them. Needless to say, not everyone was thrilled about the book. 
One of our favorite guys, William Stoughton, got busy getting a warrant to arrest Thomas on December 12, 1695. At this point, Stoughton was lieutenant governor and acting governor as well since Phipps had passed away, which is why he was making all the decisions. Always a good idea to leave the power-hungry guy with a hard-on for witch hunts in charge. Since Thomas published the book when it was still a big no-no and it was full of what the government considered lies, Thomas was to be tried and his books seized. Sheriff George Corwin, oh, look, another Corwin, tracked down 31 copies of the book and had himself a really good banned books book burning. All that hard work turned to ash. So first, Thomas had to wait five months to get a trial date. On May 3rd, 1696 in Ipswich, it was decided that Thomas's trial would take place in Salem in November. So it was back to jail to wait another six months before he got his day in court. Man, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that trial. On the one hand, there was Thomas Mall basically saying that he wouldn't recognize the superior court since his book was based on religion, which meant the trial had to happen in a religious court. On the other hand, you have Judge Danforth foaming at the mouth, probably, since he basically called Thomas a witch. Super fun times. He made the argument that it was easy enough to print his name on the book. So his name on the book didn't prove anything. And then he took it one step further and compared the printing of his name on the book to spectral evidence. Basically, his argument was, the printer of some random person did it. Clever? Oh, oh hell yeah. And it worked. Verdict? Not guilty. And this was huge for so many reasons. If the old charter had still been around, he could have spent what remained of his life in prison. But things were changing. Opinions were changing. Minds were opening up. Freedom of speech, anyone? What makes it an even better win, half of the judges were the same guys sitting in judgment during the witch trials. After Thomas Mall's trial, Samuel Sewell basically had a light bulb moment. He looked back on his actions during the witch trials and realized... Finally, that he'd done wrong. He was both a bad guy and a bad guy. He thought God was punishing him, so he did the only thing he could. He wrote an apology. Reverend Willard read the apology to the entire church while Sewell stood in front of everyone. So famous was this letter that it actually came to be known as Sewell's Apology. Super creative, we know. The only problem with the apology was that it pissed off the wrong people. Yeah, person, really. William Stoughton, of course. Who else? How dare Sewell try and make amends? In Stoughton's mind, they did nothing wrong. So no more invites to Stoughton house parties. Dude never forgave Sewell, but honestly, who cares? By this point, the word witchcraft basically disappeared from existence, thanks in part to Phipps and the publishing ban he put into effect after the trials. Bet he didn't think that one ban could have such a ripple effect, but it did. And because the government tried to cover up the witch hunts, it meant that, as an entity, Massachusetts wasn't able to process, apologize, and move forward. Sure, some people made their own apologies, but that wasn't even remotely good enough. The government allowed the trials to continue, and they needed to take responsibility for it. Unfortunately, there was no way in hell they were going to admit they fucked up and murdered people. Copping to any wrongdoing could make them look weak, and no government ever in the history of ever wanted to look weak. But there was some backlash. Small mercies. While the government wouldn't come out and say they did something wrong, they weren't going to let a Puritan minister whisper into the ear of the governor anymore. Might as well have been a slap on the wrist for all the tragedies that people caused within their own borders, okay? Fucking honestly, 19 people were hanged, damn it. One was pressed to death, torture, let's call it what it was, and five people died in prison, including Sarah Good's infant daughter Mercy, who had been born in that hellhole. Where the hell was the justice? 
You know, of that, honestly, there was very little, and we're so fucking furious about it, because the families of the accused continued petitioning the court until 1750. This was the last time a petition was presented. Makes sense. You know, the families were probably starting to give up, figured that they weren't getting anywhere by that point. They probably wouldn't get anywhere afterwards. Or family lines were dying out. So in 1752, Salem Village officially became known as the town of Danvers. But with the petitions still constantly coming in until 1750, Salem Village never had a chance to forget and move on, which is only fair. You shouldn't forget. They shouldn't get to be able to move on. Not in a, oh, we don't even think about that kind of way because 25 people died. It wasn't until 2001 that the final five accused witches who were hanged were exonerated. What we can't fucking understand is why it took so long to get to that point from 1692-93 to 2001. What is with that gap? Okay, I don't I don't know why it wasn't on the agenda, it wasn't on their minds. People just didn't think about it, but that's way too long. Seriously, like put it into perspective. That's 19 years ago, guys. 19 years. We were very likely all alive at this point. Well, I know Adrian and I were. It's <laughs> the important thing. <laughs> right? Okay. So in our lifetime, that's when these ladies were exonerated. Right. And that's just absolute insanity. That should have happened centuries ago. Regardless, after just over 300 years, those men and women can finally rest in peace. And we honestly very truly hope that they do. So rest in peace, ladies and gents. It's our watch now. And that is the end of part two. Guys, thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. We will be back on Saturday, April 4th, with the third and final part in our Salem Witch Trials miniseries and all the recommendations that come with it. Of which we have many. Yes, we do. Okay, so we may have covered the trials as a whole, but the story's not over yet. Part three is going to cover the big questions. Why did it happen? How did a community manage to turn on each other? To turn on itself. So stay tuned. And we're a day early, but it still counts. Our entire lives, all the male members of our family, from our dad to our uncles and cousins, have always wished us a happy March 8th. Because it's International Women's Day. And now we get to celebrate it with all of you. So to all you ladies out there, have a beautiful and wonderful March 8th. Historians out. Hi, everyone. This is Clint. This is Ross. This is Joel. This is Cutter. This is Tony. From Three Beers In. A proud member of Big Heads Media Network. Each episode, we review local Austin craft beer and talk about... Clove and Bananas. References I don't get. And Academy Award winner, Matthew McConaughey. So tune in. Crack open a beer. And hang out with us. Find us on BigHeadsMedia.com. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify... Or on 3beersinpodcast.com. This is the podcast.